Welcome back to another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson, now at Canto 26 of Dante's Purgatorio. The previous canto ended with Dante's glimpses into that wall of fire on the Terrace of Lust, in which he could see shades having their lustful impulses burnt out of them as they chanted a hymn and called out examples of chastity. The new canto begins as Dante, Virgil, and Statius continue walking single file around this level, keeping to the outer edge where there is no fire. Virgil keeps warning Dante to watch his step as he balances between the flames and the sheer drop. It's getting late in the afternoon, and they are approaching the westernmost part of the mountain, so the sun is shining straight across at them, causing Dante's shadow to be cast on that wall of flame. The place where the shadow appears turns a darker red, and the shades within the flame take note of this change in the colour. It's a very human moment when they turn to each other and share their wonder at this sight. There's someone who's casting a shadow. He obviously doesn't have an aerial body. What can that mean? Some of them come up close to the edge of the flames to look more closely. They could just walk out of the fire if they wanted to, but that would mean a break in their healing, and they choose not to do that. And one of them asks Dante very politely, as we'd expect, how it is that his body casts that shadow as if he's not even dead yet. He adds that all of his company are burning with thirst and fire, not just as part of their suffering, presumably, but also now thirsting to know Dante's situation. Dante gets ready to give a reply when his attention is drawn to the appearance of another crowd coming in the opposite direction through the fire. The two groups come together, each one finding one person in the other group to give a kiss to while still on the move, and then they go off on their way down the flaming path. But before they part, the new crowd shouts out, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the other, the the ones who first approached Dante, shout out, Pasiphae gets into the cow, lusting to receive the bull's advances. I'd better explain what this is all about later on. And then, the other crowd gone, the first crowd resumes its hymn and examples of chastity, but they also come back to the edge to learn more about Dante's situation. Now Dante can answer the question. His limbs are not left back on earth, dead or alive, as have the limbs of everyone else up here, but they are right there with him, living flesh. He explains that he's ascending the mountain to heal his blindness through the grace of a lady up there above. And then he makes his offer to these souls. If they tell him who they are, he'll write the names down and the names of the ones in that other group, leaving unspoken the rest of the offer to encourage himself and others to pray for their progress up the mountain. And the shade graciously answers Dante, identifying the two groups. The group who had just passed on were homosexual, for which Dante meant using their sexual passion in a sterile way. They were crying out the names of Sodom and Gomorrah, the biblical towns noted for as sodomy. Crying out like that reminds them of what they did wrong, and that fans the flames here, increasing their suffering, which, as we know, also speeds their healing. And the group now with Dante, the voice says, were hermaphroditic. That doesn't mean they do it both ways, but that men do it with women and women with men. 
But those suffering here abandon themselves to their passion, like beasts. And as for the names of the people here, well, there isn't time to go into all that, and he's not even sure how he would go about it. He can, however, identify himself as Guido Gunizelli, a noted poet of the previous generation, a poet from whom Dante learned a lot and to whom he owed a lot of gratitude. Dante acknowledges that Guido was a father to him and to others. He's lost in admiration as he gazes at Guido. He wants to move closer, but of course cannot. When he's finally composed enough to speak again, he assures Guido that he'll do whatever Guido needs him to do. Guido is moved by Dante's obvious signs of deep affection, which he says he'll never forget, but wants to know why Dante has shown so much affection for him. But it was your poems, Dante says, which will be valued as long as our language lasts. Brother, Guido says, that one up ahead I'm pointing to, he was a better mocker than I ever was. He was the best in love poetry and stories, despite what people say about, about that poet from Limoges. It's just talk that places him better than that one up there. The same with those who overvalued Guitone. And then Guido gets to the final point. And if you are indeed privileged to go up to heaven, please say a pater noster there for me. For my healing, of course, but you can omit, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, since we're now beyond temptation and evil here. Then Guido glides back into the heart of the fire like a fish darting through water. Dante, curious about the man Guido has been pointing to, moves up to be closer to that person, still keeping well away from the fire itself. He announces his desire to learn his name, after all he'd been so highly praised as a poet. The man answers that he is Arno Daniel, the famous Provençal troubadour, weeping in the fire, but rejoicing at the thought that he's coming ever closer to divine joy. And he too asks for prayer before he darts back deeper into the fire. And with this the canto ends. In the last canto, Dante had merely seen and heard the souls burning off their lustful urges in the fire, but now in this new canto he engages with them, or with some of them. First he engages their attention because of the shadow he casts on the flames, and then they come nearer to the edge of the flames, and Guido Guinizelli questions Dante. This conversation hardly gets started, though, before it's interrupted by the arrival of the other group of penitent souls, who engage with the first group, briefly and with a kiss, before moving on out of sight. Dante can then resume the discussion with Guido, explaining his situation, though not actually identifying himself, and then asking for the identities of the souls he sees before him in the flames. Guido explains the two different kinds of lust being purified here and, and gives his name. Dante's astounded to see the poet who, apart obviously from Virgil, was his father in poetic creativity. But contrary to what we might expect, the conversation does not then focus on poetry, but, but on poetic reputation. The final voice in the canto comes from Arno Daniel, the master troubadour, but he too does not speak of poetry, only of the healing he's undergoing. So, in a way, it is a canto that avoids what it might be promising, as though we're no longer in an area where earthly talent and creativity mean anything, compared to the need to finish the purgation. 
they're all so close to their final release into heaven that nothing else really matters. We spoke last time of the drama in these cantos, that is, the pattern of interaction between the characters. We notice here that, apart from, again, warning Dante in the third line to watch his step, Virgil has nothing more to say in the canto. He seems to be losing his importance. Statius, too, has nothing to say. Dante is very much coming into his own, and he speaks with confidence. Of course, he's addressing Italian and Provençal poets, who might have little interest to the two Latin poets, and, and perhaps we might imagine that Virgil and Statius, knowing that they are soon to part forever after such a short time together, are trying to get in as much conversation as they can while they can out there in the background of the canto. The sun is in such a position now, late in the afternoon, that shining almost horizontally onto Dante's body, it throws a shadow onto the wall of flame. We haven't had a reference to Dante's shadow for a while, but now, after Statius' discussion about the nature of bodies and souls, we're more aware of how unusual a shadow is on this mountain. All of these shades visible to Dante's senses cast no shadows because their aerial bodies are immaterial projections onto the air around the souls. Dante, however, still has a real material body which is able to block the sunlight. The presence of his shadow arouses as much curiosity in the souls here as it has anywhere else as they come flocking over to see this strange phenomenon. I think we might also take this reminder that Dante is still in his body to realize that, being still alive, he's still liable to the temptations of wrongful passion, unlike the souls up here, whose temptations, as Guido says, are over. They're just healing, but Dante may still be in danger. I'll speak more about that a little later. I haven't said much about the formal and graceful way the characters address each other on purgatory, but before we leave these seven terraces, let's acknowledge this. Few people in purgatory, and this includes Dante, ask a question straight out, but preface it with some remark showing they are aware of the person's position. In my discussions of the encounters in the Purgatorio, I've generally overlooked these polite preliminary greetings. Well, because I'm, because I'm usually paraphrasing the poem into colloquial English, and we no longer bother with such polite addresses. But we must occasionally stop and notice, for instance, that Dante has often first addressed the souls he's met by acknowledging that they are eventually going to rest in heavenly joy. And then here... Guido Guinizelli from Out of the Flames first addresses Dante as someone who is walking behind the other two, not because he's slothful. How could anyone be slothful if they've made it this far? But perhaps out of respect, letting the others go first. He assumes that Dante, having made it this far, will naturally shape all his actions in accordance with the loving respect for the people he's with, and will not try to push himself forward. And Guido's right. Dante is walking behind the other two because he has respect, for Virgil as his teacher and guide, and for Statius as a soul now ready for heaven. And now for those souls suffering here. We see two examples of lust, the homosexuals and what Dante calls the hermaphrodites, or as we would say, heterosexuals. They represent two excesses of sexual passion, the sterile passion, which is moved to engage in sex that will produce no offspring, 
and the animalistic passion which just gives in to its desires. The first group cries out Sodom, which reminds them of their shameful acts, and this shame makes them burn hotter. It's a kind of purification through shame, the good use of shame. We're not going to go into the issue of Dante's attitude to same-sex activities. We saw in the Inferno that the setting for the sodomists, the burning barren sands, illustrates the problem of sterility, and we acknowledge there that Dante would probably have had no sense of the loving, long-term, monogamous gay couples raising a family. But sterile passion in a larger sense can include perhaps the passion, say, for books that simply results in your spending hours on end lost in the book, doing nothing else with your time, and coming away from the reading unchanged, just having spent those hours away from the real world. Or a passion for some Hollywood screen goddess whom you're never going to meet, a passion that is self-absorbed and productive of nothing. The second group cries out a short version of the story of Pasiphae, who had a wood and leather hollow statue of a cow made for her, into which she maneuvered herself in just the right position for a bull to come mount her and please her. Dante's not thinking about bestial sexuality, but of the unthinking giving in to animal urges. Maybe he's thinking more about the bull than about the woman. We can think back to Paolo and Francesca in the Inferno, who were, in this sense, animalistic, since they just gave in to their urges, lingering together over an erotic love story, which inflamed their passion further, and then kissing, after which all restraint was gone. This is lust as Dante presents it, not so much the strong urge, but the surrender to it when it is wrongly directed. Paolo and Francesca's lustful kiss contrasts clearly with the way these two groups here exchange kisses as they move past each other in different directions. A kiss, and stopping at just exchanging a kiss, being the chaste form of showing affection. Even though they're rushing along, they still have time to embrace their opposites. And to notice here that at the final level of purgation, Dante brings in memories of other places he's described, specifically in hell. Like the avarice there, we see two circles of souls coming together from opposite directions and exchanging greetings, but now not banging huge boulders at each other, but with kisses. And Dante's desire to embrace his revered poetic father Guinizelli reminds us of his similar desire to embrace the sodomites in hell, running along under the flaming snowflakes of fire, but he restrains himself from an embrace out of justifiable fear of being burned. There are parallels with other groups in hell, but we'll leave it like this for now. The voice that speaks to Dante from Out of the Flames remains unidentified for quite some time until he reveals that he is Guido Guinizelli. Dante is speechless when he hears this, which is an odd thing for a poet, a person of words, and especially odd in this canto all about poets. But maybe Dante's silence shows us an important element in the poetic process. You don't just jump into speech. You spend time in silence, contemplating the wonderful thing before you, and only after a time do you put your feelings into words and continue whatever conversation had been going on. That's the right path for the passion of poetry. Guido has no idea of how much he means to Dante, 
First of all, since Dante has not identified himself, but also because Guido had died in 1276 when Dante was just a boy. He, he wouldn't know who Dante was. As far as he knows, this man speaking to him from the ledge could be just one of his fans, one of those who happened to like his poems. He doesn't know that this man, this Dante, has taken Guido's first steps in the Dolce Stil Novo and lifted them up into this epic masterpiece, celebrating not just love of a lady, but the redeeming love of a lady, a spiritual love that leads to heaven. It's appropriate, then, that in giving account of himself, Dante makes the point that he is here on purgatory and rising up even farther, thanks to the graces of that lady in heaven the Dolce Stil Novo love poetry in its highest manifestation. And now, as Statius had found his Virgil, his father in poetry, so Dante finds his Guinizelli, the founder of the school of the Dolce Stil Novo. But not a father as Dante had described him, but, as Guido pointedly says, his brother. For brothers and sisters are, we begin to see, the only relationships that are valid in these regions of saved souls. And for all Guido's importance to the movement, he doesn't speak about the Dolce Stil Novo. That had been covered earlier with Bona Giunta, but instead he talks about foolish literary critics who judge works of literature without really engaging in the writing at all. They listen to the popular voices, surrendering to popular passion rather than directing their passion where it should go, to the art and to the writer's skill. Lust, then, can be extended into a literary sphere if we misdirect the way we judge and praise the literature we read. Literature has its lustful aspect not just in the way we read, but in the way we write. These writers of intense love poetry, now suffering from wrong passion, might be showing us the danger of celebrating or over-celebrating the passionate attachment to another person. In a way, love poetry can be seen as sterile exciting our passions in a text rather than for another real person. Or it can inflame our passions, like the romance Paolo and Francesca were reading, and lead us like them to a brink we cannot pull back from. Love poetry, then, at least in its extreme form, can take the shape of the two categories of lust we have seen here, the sterile and the animalistic. And perhaps Dante is hinting that the poets who write such things are the most prone to falling for the sin they're healing from here. There's a little detail sort of hidden in the middle of the canto that might be relevant here too. Dante asks Guido to tell him the names of the people with him in the flames so he can write them down. It's not the first time that Dante has made this kind of oblique reference to the poem we are reading now, but it's significant here proposing a different kind of topic for love poetry. Not so much celebrating passion for a lady love, but writing down the names of these saved souls, celebrating our passion for all souls, especially those in this community of healing people, poetry as a kind of dance of love. I encounter loving people, and I write about them, and you read about them, and in this way we can all share and exchange this healthy passion together. Arno Daniel seems to have come a great way along in his healing. This great troubadour of love poetry seems to have put all that love poetry business behind him. He has nothing to say about the poetry he's celebrated for, but does produce a fine little poem that Dante gives us in Provençal as the final lines he will hear from any of the souls suffering in purgatory. 
Arno's words are simple and direct, unlike the complex, ornate language he used in his poetry, and he speaks only of his healing, weeping over his past errors and looking forward to his bliss ahead. In Arno's final line, he tells Dante to remember, in the proper time, his, Arno's, suffering. This is a line, as Prue Shaw points out, that can mean both remember my suffering and offer prayers for me when you get to heaven or back on earth, or it might be taken as a warning for Dante to remember the way immersion in love poetry can lead one into this wrongful lust. And, and thus the canto begins with a warning from Virgil to watch his step in regard to his passions, and it ends with a similar caution. These warnings, enveloping the experience on the terrace of lust, emphasize this final healing process after we've been purified from the lower stains. These dangerous passions are our final challenge. And these are timely warnings, since Dante is almost ready to meet Beatrice, the lady he celebrates in his poetry, the lady whose inspiration has led him away from surrendering to lower forms of passion and up to the highest. But that doesn't mean that Dante is entirely free from lust of other kinds. He's going to have to undergo his own share of suffering in the next canto, the most terrifying suffering he's encountered yet. We'll meet there and see what that is all about.